0: Hello, Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. In February of 2023, Convention of States co-founder and senior advisor Michael Ferris speaks to a group of local supporters in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I really appreciate you coming. I uh, It's been a long time since I've been to Wyoming other than Yellowstone. I've been into Yellowstone maybe 10 years ago, but uh, as a kid, we used to drive through uh, one corner of, of Wyoming a lot, and I will just have to say that I, I had a crush on a girl from summer camp from Kimmer, Wyoming, one time, a long time ago. And I, I, I never knew what happened to her, but we're not going to talk about that anymore because my wife w- might watch this. <laughs> um, um, just one quick correction um, um, I don't, nothing I've ever done in my life have I done alone. Uh, there have been a lot of people, the homeschool th- uh, success, for example, thousands of people were involved in that. I was at the point perhaps of that, that movement, but God and people worked with me. And so uh, I appreciate the kindness that's in that mark, remark, but it, it does me good from a spiritual perspective to make sure I correct the record and say that th- that's what that really is all about. And this uh, effort here is, is, is like that. No one person is gonna pull this off. Uh, and so it's going to take a lot of us. <laughs> I'm going to um, talk about a couple of the issues relative to the convention of the states that really plague conservatives. You know, there there are leftists that are more loudly and more loudly opposing convention of states because they like a huge runaway federal government. They think that's in their interest. They're socialists. They're Marxists. They're statists. They're humanists. They're woke you know, that crowd makes sense, but when there are people on the right that are making the exact same arguments as that crowd, it's a bit troubling. And so I'm, I wanna spend a fair amount of the time, I'm not gonna spend, you know, like an hour or anything like that, maybe 20 minutes uh, talking, but I, I mostly wanna answer questions that people might have, especially those that are here for, that are members of the legislature. So um, I was the guy that dreamed this whole thing up and um, uh, with a little bit of help, I wrote the, the resolution that's uh, now been passed exactly in 19 states. The reason to do it exactly the same on the operative language, is so you never have a, have a question about whether it aggregates or not. Um, for example, the balanced budget amendment applications have varied considerably. And though if I'm on the Supreme Court, I would rule that they, they all aggregate, there's gonna be a case about that if they, if they ever get to 34. Um, but for ours, all 19 states have been exactly the same. And so I was the guy who principally was the author of that. And, and, and so the goal of the, Conve- of the Convention of States is to bring discipline to the federal government in these areas, in the area of fiscal restraints, term limits, and reducing the power of the federal government. Now, that's basically setting the agenda for what is permissible to talk about at the convention of states. You can't talk about anything else other than those three topics. And so anything that fits into those would be permissible. A balanced budget, that'd be permissible. Putting a single subject rule onto Congress, that would be permissible. Um, putting term limits on federal bureaucrats, that would be permissible. And so anything that, that uh, has the, the idea of reducing federal power is permissible. Now. You know, the scare stories that go around. What if somebody proposes taking away the Second Amendment? That is not permissible because that's not reducing the power of the federal government. It's not germane whatsoever. And so it would be out of order. Now the question comes then is well, why can't they change the rules in the middle of the stream? So there's a, a couple of answers to that. First of all, There are hundreds and hundreds of applications for an Article V convention that are on the books and are valid today, hundreds of them, far more than the 34 states that are needed, but they're not on the same subject. And so the historical practice has settled the rule. You have to have them on the same subject for it to count because otherwise we would have had a convention 150 years ago and, and many of those resolutions are still on the books. The other uh, more recent example of historical practice is the Equal Rights Amendment. When the Equal Rights Amendment was proposed originally in the early 70s, Congress said seven years to ratify. It's a part of the resolution. The, uh, Congress has the power under the Article 5 to choose the mode for ratification. It can be state based conventions. That's only been done once, and that was for the prohibition a repeal, the 21st Amendment. And otherwise, they can choose legislatures. And what the, uh, practice has begun, and that's been going, has gone to the Supreme Court and been tested, and that is, as a part of setting the method of choosing which of those two options they have, Congress can also set a, a time limit if they want to. They don't have to set a time limit, um, but they can set a time limit if they want to, because the idea is. You want an amendment to be agreed to contemporaneously, not let it linger there for a couple hundred years and then somebody come back and do it, you know, add on a state or two. And so, <clears throat> so around 1977, Congress decided that they weren't gonna get the 38 ratifications within the seven year period, so they attempted to change the rules and add three and a half years to the ratification. At this point in my life, I'm two years out of law school. A friend of mine calls me up and asks me what I think about the constitutionality of that change of the the deadline. And I said, well, Dottie, I think it's unconstitutional. And she said, so what are you gonna do about it? And nothing was not an acceptable answer to Dottie Roberts. And so I, on behalf of four Washington state conservative Republican legislators, filed the first lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the change of the rules of the Equal Rights Amendment. Fortunately, some more experienced lawyers, including the Attorney General of Idaho and uh, senior lawyers from the state of Arizona filed a similar case in Boise. Uh, I was smart enough to dismiss my case in federal court in Tacoma, fly to Boise, intervene in their case from which the judge granted my intervention on the day it was filed. And so we worked together as a team. They they were more of the senior people, but I had a role. I, I, I stood in court and argued. In fact, when they tried to disqualify the judge, a federal judge because he was a Mormon and the Mormon church had opposed the ERA. I personally argued the the, the appeal on that issue in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and won. And so I'm deeply immersed in Article V. In fact, I went to the National Archives in the middle of that case and held in my hand all the original ratification documents from the 13th Amendment forward into modern history to check them to see if they were following a, a basically the same rule you use in legislatures and that is the ratifications have to match the text of the proposed amendment. Just like two houses can't pass a bill that is sort of the same, Um, that was what I was doing there. So I am deeply, deeply immersed in Article V history and have litigated one of the few lawyers in the country who's ever actually litigated an Article V case. And the outcome of that, that case in Idaho was you can't change the rules in the middle of the stream. And so that's the answer to the question of, well, can you change the germaneness? Well, even even if that, I mean, and if they ever tried to do it, I guarantee you, I'm not too old to file another lawsuit challenging it. And I, I'm a little more senior right now. I, I'm at the age should be arguing cases like that rather than two years out of law school. <clears throat> Nonetheless, uh, assuming that the that the litigation didn't work and the convention didn't work and it all, you know, got askew, anything that comes out of a convention of states has to be ratified by 38 states. So, if 13 states say no, it's no. And if one house in each state, each of those 13 states says no, it's no. So, if we don't think that you know, we'll use the Second Amendment repeal example. If we don't think that we can get to 13 states that will say no to repealing the Second Amendment, we don't know how to read politics. Um, and and so, the you know, there's 25 states. Where you have open carry law you have a constitutional right to carry 25 states do you think states that have done that are going to repeal the second amendment that's that's just not you know it's, it's that's not rational politics rational politics says it's impossible to pass something uh radical or dangerous in this area maybe we won't get everything we want i would you know if uh mark levin wrote a book proposing 10 uh, amendments that would be germane under our our uh, our call for a convention, and uh, I'd like all of them, but realistically, they're not all going to happen. Um, so I think that we'll get something modest, but it will be something like uh, a single subject rule. I think would be the 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 best. Uh, a simple thing that could come through that I, I think can get ratified by thirty eight for sure now many other things i 'd like to see, but the agenda for discussion is one thing. see what we get out of the convention second and see what get ratified as third, and we won't get as much as we want, but simply teaching Congress that they are under the control of the states is worth doing even if we get even if we get one out of it it's worth doing because we we tell them now. Why did we have Article Five written in this way in the first place? We were ab- about four days from the close of the, Ar- of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And the way it was, in the draft of the Constitution at that point, is Congress proposes all the amendments, the states ratify all the amendments. George Mason stood up and said listen, and I'm gonna paraphrase, um, he said listen guys, uh, um, someday the federal government's gonna abuse its authority, and when that happens, we need the ability to propose amendments. Um, Ellie, come on in. Uh, we need to, uh, the ability to propose amendments uh, from the states so that the, only the states will have the ability, the, the political ability, to restrain the power of the federal government. Congress will never restrain its own power. And the record of the convention says, uh, Mason's amendment was agreed to nim con, which means without debate. Just everybody said, Like duh, or they probably said we hold this truth to be self-evident, but it it means the same thing. And and so um, that is, um, all state legislators in this country have two basic sources of authority. Their state constitution gives them a great deal, most of their authority. But the Constitution of the United States gives you additional authority. Now if a state legislator says, you know what, there have been criminal laws passed in, the, in our state in the past that are abusive, they're wrong. And I don't wanna ever abuse anybody's rights through criminal law, so I'm never gonna vote for any criminal law issues because it might be abused and somebody might be prosecuted inappropriately. We think that was a dereliction of duty. You have a moral, you have an authority to do something Now, it doesn't mean you pass every criminal law that comes along, but to refuse to pass any criminal laws because you think they might be abused would be a violation of your moral authority, and I would say before God, God has given you the ability to do this, and so with that authority comes moral responsibility. Now, you have authority also from Article 5 of the Constitution. You get this directly from the federal constitution, not from the state constitution. Federal Constitution gives you, unilaterally, the only group of Americans that can do this, that can rein in the abuse of power in the federal government. With that authority, I believe, comes the moral responsibility to use it. Does that mean you pass every silly thing that comes along? No. So make could propose, there are some proposed amendments that are on the books. I told you, you know, there are hundreds of them. There's some crazy ones out there. Um, there was, Propose a world government um, in you know North Carolina passed it back you know 40 50 years ago, and a couple other states did. Um, nonsense, craziness. Um, so should you vote for every Article Five application? No. Just as you won't vote for every criminal law or every every civil law, or if you're the governor, you won't necessarily sign every execution. But to do none of those because you're afraid it might be misused at some time. I suggest is a breach of your moral responsibility. You uniquely have the power to say to the federal government, you're abusing your authority, it's time to stop it. And it's like having a 250-year-old child that you've never disciplined. They're gonna get out of hand after a while. And it's time to discipline the kid and get him under control. Um, The last thing I'm gonna talk about is Um, this one makes me mad. And so if I get a little mad, just uh, hang on, I'll I'll get over it. Um, And that is people who say the Constitution of the United States was the result of a runaway federal convention in, in Philadelphia. They were only supposed to amend the Articles of Confederation, and instead they wrote a whole new document. Before I tell you historically why that is just absolutely wrong and effectively a lie, let me just talk about the implication of that argument. The implication of the argument is, is our constitution was illegally adopted. That's what it means. And if our constitution was illegally adopted, why are people calling themselves a constitutionalist and making that argument? If, if they think it was illegally adopted, they should be trying to tear it down. And in fact, they are trying to tear it down because they're trying to make article five null and void. And, and to fail to use the very power that we are supposed to use uh, for the states to discipline our child called the federal government. So here's why it's a lie. First of all, if you know anything at all about the Articles of Confederation, Congress had no implied powers, none. Um, and the reason that we needed a new constitution was because it was too weak in many, many areas. And so states called The Annapolis Convention. There's no power in the uh, Articles of Confederation for them to call anything, and they didn't. The states called the Annapolis Convention. They got there, they were supposed to talk about commerce. They realized quickly that that wasn't a big enough assignment, that they needed to, to make more fixes than just commerce and being good delegates responsible to the authority that they were given, they said, we can't do anything with this limited responsibility of authority. We gotta go back to our states and ask them to give us more authority. They didn't run away then. If there was gonna be a runaway, that would have been a runaway, to violate what the states told them to do and just go on. But they went back to the states and said, because the Annapolis Convention suggested this language, They wanted to hold a convention, and I quote, to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. So they went back, and Virginia was the first state to adopt that language. They appointed their delegates, named their delegates. Six states did exactly the same thing. They said, render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union, named their delegates. In between states six and seven, Congress, the Articles of Confederation, acted. They passed a resolution that I... Uh, the best analogy is a National Pickle Week resolution passed by Congress now. It's their opinion on some subject. It has no binding properties whatsoever. It didn't call the convention. When Congress was asking states to do things in those days, there were always, always two resolutions passed. One was the, the substantive measure, and the second was a letter of transmission to the state, and they voted on both. It was never, their resolution was never sent to the states. Because it wasn't aimed at the states, it was just giving their opinion on what should happen, and and so um, the states said that you know Congress is the one that said only amend the Articles of Confederation. They also said render the federal Constitution adequate for the exigencies of the Union. So, like all Congress, they were speaking out of both sides of their mouth. But but nonetheless, taking them at their you know at their more limited word, it was just their opinion. Six more states appointed delegates, and a total of 10 said, render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. One state, Connecticut, had kind of a mixture of, of that. It was pretty close, and, mass, uh, um, and New York said exactly what Congress said. When it became obvious that they were going to write a new document, two of the delegates from New York left, never participated again and the, the, the rules from the New York legislature was you can't vote for New York unless all three delegates are present. So Alexander Hamilton stayed in the rest of the convention and debated and talked but never voted again because New York couldn't vote. Why? Because they obeyed the rules of, of engagement given to them by their states. They obeyed the rules. And so um, New York didn't violate their, their uh, instructions because they stopped voting, didn't participate. Um, and so there was a suggestion that Massachusetts delegates violated their rules, but there was a, a vote in the Massachusetts ratification convention suggesting that that had been done. And two to one, Massachusetts delegates or, uh, to that ratification convention said, "No, our delegates did not violate their rest- their instructions. They did the right thing by proposing a new constitution." So, are you going to believe people from today who you know um, are a little on the edge, perhaps? and you know, make these arguments that all this was illegal? Or are you are gonna believe the people who actually had given them the authority and then voted on whether they, re- they, they did it properly? I, I would suggest that the people who lived in Massachusetts in 1787 are a better judge of what happened in 1787 than really anybody today. And so it was not a runaway. The Constitution of the United States was not violated uh, or was not adopted in violation of the rules in place in the Articles of Confederation. One last thing, Warren Berger talked Phyllis Schlafly into opposing a convention of the states. Why did he do that? Warren Berger, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court made a speech in Court Idaho where he said the Constitution of the United States was illegally adopted. He buys the lie, hook, line, and seeker. The Chief Justice of the United States. And he said it when he was acting as the chairman of the Bicentennial of the United States. I mean, just the irony of that is just a little bit mind-boggling. Why did he convince Phyllis? Phyllis, he, and Phyllis was my good friend. We traveled together on the ERA litigation. And I knew her from 77 forward until her death. I'm still good friends with her, her daughter who now runs Eagle Forum. 19 states had passed an Article V convention to reverse Roe versus Wade. Phyllis was sent on a mission by Warren Berger to reverse those. And six states reversed their call for an Article V convention in the 1970s and early 80s. If that had not been done, we were on a path, the pro life movement was on a path to reverse Roe versus Wade 30 years earlier than we did. Millions and millions and millions of babies have been killed because of the fear mongering that has gone on from the John Birch Society and their friends. Millions of babies have been killed as a result of that because they did the bidding of Warren Burger who was the co-author of the uh, Roe versus Wade decision. Absolutely outrageous. And so I suggest that people who don't know their own history don't really get it and they shouldn't be the ones that we listen to. We should be listening to the people who have correctly understood the history, and it's a really simple question. Do you think the United States of the Constitution was improper, illegally adopted, or are you defending the legitimacy of the Constitution? Those are the two sides. You can boil it down to its essence, because that's what the runaway convention people are arguing, is that that the Constitution itself is illegal. If you wanna do that, they are not constitutionalists. I don't care what else they, they, they think they are, they are not constitutionalists when they take that position. Just as an aside, the first two presidents of the John Birch Society supported an Article V convention. They wanted to pass something they called the Liberty Amendment. It repealed income tax, it repealed the 17th Amendment. It had some interesting ideas in it, and they both said that they would do it. Uh, through an Article V process. I was personal friends with the second president, Larry McDonald, who was a Democrat legislator from Georgia. I knew him well, I, knew his, I, I worked with his son on projects. His son was Assistant Secretary of Education later. I knew him, knew him well. So the John Birch Society not only is contrary to the founders of the country, they're contrary to their own founders. And I, I don't know why they're listening to George Soros and the leftists and, and, and Warren Burger, but they are and they've turned their back on the, on, the, on the foundation of this country, and they've turned the back on the foundation of their own organization. And it's inexplicable to me why they do that, and it's even further inexplicable to me why anybody listens to them. And so, um, with that little bit of a, a rant, um, I would uh, be glad to answer questions that anybody has. Right now, the states do have the power to take over, they just don't take it. And why is that? I mean, every governor we have could take that power back. Ron DeSantis has. And our South Dakota, she took the power back. Will this really help us? I mean, we have the power now without the seal. Well, um, you have the power to do many, many things. But uh, I heard Ron DeSantis speak Saturday night. it It was a Fabulous speech. I spent an hour with him personally, one-on-one, a year and a half ago. Um, I was—he was asking me cases about about ADF's litigation cases. It was very—he the guy knows his stuff. It was really interesting. The things that he's done all remain at effectively the state level. There is no power, even with a great aggressive guy like that, to overturn what the federal government's doing, and so. You, you can do a lot, you can do a lot of good, um, a, a lot of good with an aggressive governor. And the one thing that, that uh, DeSantis' example shows us is that there are gonna be more governors that start acting like him because it, people see his political popularity skyrocketing. I mean, he's gaining votes. Um, you know, single women voted for him in the governor's race. You know, you know, more single women voted for him than against him. It was close. He had bigger margins than other demographics, but that's a very reliable Democrat constituency. And he got their votes, why? Because people like boldness. And so um, he'll have imitators. When legislators act boldly and call out the federal government for violating their, their authority and do the right thing, you'll get imitators as well. Boldness creates boldness. Um, I was at the very beginning of the homeschooling movement. One family that decided to homeschool their kids and take a stand and, and whether the, the um, Evie was telling me today that her family had to hide uh, during the day when they were homeschooling when she was a little girl. And uh, a lot of, you know, uh, our family did that at times as well, but I was a little bit more cavalier because, you know, I can sue them. Um, um, but the, um, we, I, you know, I went through that. But one family made another family more bold. And so uh, if we go after the federal government right now and, and curtail their power, this will be a historic sea change in this country. And we, we will see, a, a, I believe, a real realignment of power completely if we just kind of get the first domino going. And so doing this, I believe, will be the first domino and a real sea change. And federalism will become robust again. And freedom will become robust again because the the truth of the matter is the federal government has some authority. The state governments have some authority. But there is a big batch of authority that belongs to the people themselves and no government has legitimate authority over those things. And so if we can get this on the right, uh, tra- trajectory, the authority of the individual, the authority of the family, the authority of the local business, the authority of the church will all become ro- more robust over time because we have stood against the people that are doing more than any other. States are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the worst culprit by a long shot is the federal government, and we need to push back and push back hard. Yes? I know you do a lot of uh, discussing restoring the general welfare clause, and I've talked about it when I do presentations, but could you explain that? A- sure. Now, okay, we're going from the straightforward to the advanced, but here we go. Um, the question is I mean, if I had a magic wand and I could ensure that 38 states would pass this, this would be my first, my highest priority, and that is to restore the general welfare clause to its original meaning. And there were, um, the first thing you need to know about the original meaning of the general welfare clause is they took it from the Articles of Confederation. And so if it's from the Articles of Confederation, you know good and well that it doesn't mean Congress can spend money on any fool thing it wants because that's what it means today. That's what the Supreme Court has said it means starting in the 1930s. And so, um, so what does it mean? Well, there are two schools of thought. James Madison's school of thought was this, that the general welfare clause is not a grant of power, but it's a limitation on power. When you use your authority to build postal roads, when you use your authority to regulate interstate commerce, when you use your authority to do anything that Congress has the authority to do, you have to do it in a way that is for the general welfare. No private deals, no regional deals, no personal gimmies, no log rolling, none of that. You have to do it for the general welfare. That's the majority view of the founders. The minority view of the founders, but it's shared by some important people, James Madison, George Washington among them, is that it is a grant of power, but it's this grant of power. Congress has the jurisdiction to, do, to enact laws on things where the states are jurisdictionally incompetent. And um, so what does that mean? Are states competent? Do they have jurisdiction over education? Yes. Can the federal government regulate education? No. Do the states, can states pass environmental laws? Yes. Can the federal government pass environmental laws? No. Can the states regulate banking? Yes. Can Congress regulate banking? No. Anything the states can regulate, the federal government, cannot regulate. And there's a, flip, there's a parallel to this in the Commerce Clause, and it's true both ways. Whether it's spend money, and that's a general welfare clause, can you spend money on things that are not within your enumerated powers? The correct answer is no. And the, and the Commerce Clause, which is its twin, can you regulate things that are not within your, your power? The answer is no. Commerce means, some of you are old enough to remember Dionne Warwick, trains and boats and planes. That's what the Commerce Clause is, shipping stuff. It's not about manufacturing, it's not about banking, it's not about agriculture, it's not about mining. None of the, a General Motors factor, factory is not engaged in interstate commerce. I don't care where they get their products from or their components from. The, when, those, when the cars come out of the factory and put it on those weird trucks, it's commerce. Once on the truck, starts. And if that truck crosses the state lines or intends to cross the state line, that's interstate commerce. If it's, it's going to stay in Michigan, that's intrastate commerce. When the truck gets to the car dealership in Virginia and the truck cars come off the truck, commerce is over, and the, nothing that happens at the at the at the car dealership is commerce. Commerce, uh, and so those two things together. If we go back to that and say, if states have jurisdiction and spending authority or regulatory authority, the federal government cannot regulate the same thing because the founders were really smart. Their r- rule is this. One level and only one level of government can regulate anything. That's it. And so we don't need the department of this and that. You know, I, I once, um, doing homeschool work in New York, walked past the state uh, education offices. There was a regional program there called BOCES, which is an intermediate regional uh, office for education. Then I passed the local. Government's office that had a, you know a city department of education, and then I ended up in the federal building where I was filing a federal lawsuit on homeschooling. The federal Department of Education, four departments of education in about a mile and a half, and they were at least represented by the buildings. And that's not what anybody that, that doesn't produce good educational results. That just bl- uh, you know blows up the bureaucracy, and it helps explain why a Vanderbilt University scholar found that. The most inefficient educational program in the world is the United States. And the way they measure that is points, you know, how many dollars does it take to get a rise of one point on the international achievement test? The Soviet, Russia, not Soviet Russia is number one. The United States is last. Uh, and so, it's because we're paying for four level, three and four levels of bureaucracy. We're not paying for a lot for education. We're paying a whole lot for bureaucracy. Yes, sir. Um, so you touched on this a few minutes ago, but would you be willing to? I just want to set the ball so you can spike it here. Okay. Uh, there, many people will point toward Jefferson's idea of nullification or Madison's interposition and use that as uh, the silver bullet. They're arguing for an extra constitutional solution. We're arguing for a constitutional solution. That's the starting point. Point number two is nullification is an act of revolution. It's not an act of supervision, it's an act of revolution. And um, it, you know, it, it's not going to happen. No state, I mean, particularly, this is things of this nature are going to end up in court. And I've been close friends with the Chief Justice of Alabama Supreme Court for a long time. He and I litigated cases about public education in the early 1980s, um, both about secular humanism issues. So I've known him since the early 80s. Tom is as pro-life as you get and as constitutional as you get, and that court is probably the most conservative state Supreme Court in the country. They had an abortion case there not not many years ago, and Tom wrote an opinion blistering Roe versus Wade at the end of the opinion, I'm paraphrasing obviously, said, even though it's horrible, as a state judge I'm bound uh, to to follow it. And he gave all the reasons why it should be reversed. Um, Now if you can't get Tom Parker to nullify Roe versus Wade, it can't be done. It just simply can't be done. My final point is you don't want it to be done because here's why. I, I was the chairman, of, uh, co-chairman of the drafting group that wrote the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Hobby Lobby won its case in the Supreme Court of the United States, not on the First Amendment as it should have, but there was a bad decision in in 1990 called Employment Division versus Smith that messed stuff up, and so we had to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I named it, and it was, you know, what should we name this thing? I said, well, what about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? Nobody else had another idea, so I named it. Um, and so, um, so, California wouldn't like the decision letting Hobby Lobby r- win under RIFRA, And they nullify this federal law saying, no, the federal law says you don't have to um, uh, fund abortions because of are religious freedom. We're not gonna follow that in California. We're gonna nullify it. Do we really want that? I would suggest not. Uh, in fact, I would suggest that it's not a good idea for one state to nullify anything. Is it? It's a good th- for a collection of states to nullify things. It's called Article Five. When 34 states get together and say we're going to change what the federal government's doing, and then th- that's ratified by 38 states. That's how you want to use the state power to do it. It's the only responsible way to do it. Otherwise, you know, I guarantee you, if we have good stuff going on, if there's a, uh, you know, another Republican president anytime soon, or um, you know, just hypothetically, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, and they're doing th- things against. Woke programs in the public schools. I guarantee you, California, New York, Massachusetts would nullify everything that a, a, a good president would do. And, and that's, that's just simply not appropriate. Yes? Um, sometimes I hear um, people being a little bit concerned about the, the caliber, if you like, of legislators uh, who will be chosen to go to an Article 5 convention. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, I can speak to it. First of all, the reason we have the structure of the federal government that we have it is because our founders correctly understood the nature of man. We have limited power everywhere. First of all, it's the the federalism. Feds have this much power. States have this much power. And then the executive branch has this much power. The legislative branch has this much power. The judiciary this much power and they're all supposed to check and balance each other limited power why because men are sinful and you can't trust any of them they wrote it for sinners they wrote it for such a time as this and so and they weren't much as angels as you think they were Um, uh, about the the convention in Philadelphia Patrick Henry said I'm not going because I smell a rat so he didn't like the caliber of the people that went to the, to the convention. And they weren't all um, you know, as, as saintly as we suppose them to be. They were ordinary people. They were committed people. But, and I believe that they are great heroes and they were brilliant and everything. But I don't believe that we're, we're lacking people like that today. Now first of all, you don't have to appoint other legislators. The legislature can appoint anybody that they want. You can appoint as many as you want, because it's one state, one vote. If you want to put the bill for sending a hundred people as your delegates um, to a convention state, you could do that, and I wouldn't recommend it. I'd say five to seven would be the number that I would send. And, um, but you don't have to pick uh, only legislators. You can pick people that are, you know, you know, I, I sure hope that the state of Virginia picks me and if it's controlled by Democrats at the time we have the convention, I am open to move. <laughs> and so, um, and I wouldn't mind moving to Wyoming to tell you the truth, because um, I like to fish and hunt. And so, um, um, but there, there, are, there are people that will be capable of leading. But again, it's a group process, it's a group of sinners, and it's really two, two choices, boils down to this. Who do you want deciding how much power the federal government should have? There's only two choices in that. Congress and the federal government gets to decide how much power they should have. Or a group of, uh, of sinful state legislators get to decide how much power the sinful people in Washington, D.C. have. And the reason they set it up that way is because we didn't trust anybody and we wanted them to check and balance each other. It was sinners against sinners. And so I would suggest, as bad as state legislatures are. When I ran for Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, and I was by far and away the best candidate. And I did win the nomination by basically a two to one margin. I had three state legislators support me, and dozens supported my left-wing Republican opponents pro-abortion, pro-gay rights. And so I've seen state legislators be stupid, and, and do bad things, <clears throat> not just on that, on lots of things. I've been in this, this world for over 40 years. <clears throat> so <clears throat> you can't convince me that they're all oh, wonderful. You'll never do that. But nonetheless, I trust that group of sinners to decide how much power other people have more than I trust the people who have the power to decide how much power those people have. You have a book up there on your podium. Can yeah. you explain that to okay. us? Okay. This book, I discovered right at the beginning of the Convention of States movement is called the Constitution of the United States. That's his name, that's it. It's not abridged, annotated. It's the Constitution of the United States. This is the, the Constitution with a summary of all the decisions relative to the Constitution. This is the Constitution as practiced People say, why don't we get back, just, just follow the Constitution, that's all we need to do. Well, they are following the Constitution. Not the little one you have, a lot of you have in your pockets, but this one. This is the Constitution of the United States that the federal government's act, actually following. We need to change the law so that the Constitution that's in place supersedes much of this, not all of it. Can't do all, you know, wouldn't be appropriate to, some of them's actually okay. Um, But um, we need to uh, be able to start shrinking it back so it looks a lot more like the Constitution in your pocket and and following the original meaning of those things. So that's um, that's a quick explanation for this fat book. Um, Sometimes I'll hear that, um, you know, the federal government isn't following the Constitution now. And so why would amending it change anything? Okay. Well, the answer is they are following the Constitution now, this one. And there there have been a number of amendments, the 11th Amendment, the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment reversed uh, the Dred Scott decision. The 14th Amendment uh, reversed, well, Dred Scott and others, the 15th, uh, the 19th Amendment uh, reversed a case called Minor versus Happersat, that's a right of women to vote, and and so on. So. On the amendments where the, the Supreme Court has been reversed, they follow those faithfully. I, I don't know of any deviation on any of those fronts where they get out away from the original meaning of those things. Now sometimes, in the case of the 13th and 14th Amendment, we had to get to a little further down history. Reconstruction messed that, you know, the, when the Republicans gave up Re- Reconstruction and basically handed it to the South over the Ku Klux Klan, things went a little awry for a while. But in the long haul, those amendments are faithfully followed. And so I think that, that we would have that effect, is that we would faithfully follow things. And so some things are faithfully followed, like how old do you have to be to be president of the United States? That's faithfully followed. A friend of mine wrote a, an article one time, one time called, Bill Clinton is Unconstitutional. I like that. Um, but it was a tongue-in-cheek article saying, well, 35 doesn't mean 35. It should be a percentage of life expectancy. And in 1789, 35 was 75% of life expectancy. And so you should be 75% of life expectancy now, so you should be at least 64 in order to be president of the United States. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, the only person that was in the presidential succession line at that point in time was Strom Thurmond. And so uh, uh, I testified in the Senate Judiciary Committee on Storm Thurmond's 93rd birthday. And boy, could that rascal read questions. He couldn't answer, ask a follow-up question to save his life, but he could read those questions really, really well. So, term limits, yeah, yeah, good idea. So, all right, um, thank you all for coming. Um, if you're in the legislature, let me give you my card because it's got my cell phone number on it. And if you have any questions um, about this, obviously call me. But I'm still I, I, I divide my time between uh, third a third a third with Convention of States Project Alliance Defending Freedom, which is again the largest conservative Christian legal organization in the world. We have 400 employees, and uh, if it's about any area that free speech, right to life, religious freedom, transgender bills, anything on in that subject. Um, or, you know, I also work for national religious broadcasters. So, if any phil- you have questions about any of those things, I'll give you my cell phone number and just call me. We're glad to help you about anything, any questions you have on any, any subject where I know something about. If you have questions about mechanical issues, I would just say this. When I was in the ninth grade, they gave us this test in school, and they told me I got the second highest tr- score in the school, but the counselor said, in mechanical reasoning, you were five points below the average girl. Don't go there. And so I'm not your guy on those things. So find somebody else on that. But if you're something on the constitutional areas, I would love to be able to help you. God bless you. Thank you for coming. And it's been a thrill to be with you here in Wyoming. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.